0: I was just thinking, wouldn't it be funny if I wasn't the only one who could dream effectively? What if everybody could do it? And reality was being pulled out from under us all the time. And we didn't even know it. Wow, well, it's just a thought. I'll sleep on it. All right. And we're back. We are Lost Futures, a Mark Fisher podcast, and I'm Stephen. And I'm Marlo. And today we're covering Chapter 7, If You Can Watch the Overlap of One Reality with Another, Capitalist Realism as Dreamwork and Memory Disorder.
1: Yep. Okay, so... Starts out uh, with Jameson, uh, Antimonies of Postmodernism, where he calls the postmodern condition a fungible present.
0: Right, and I think this concept carries through throughout this entire chapter, and it kind of builds on the previous chapter that he had about bureaucracy and how bureaucracy and the office space example, where you're given kind of a passive... Uh, authoritarian figure that kind of molds your reality to whatever a company wants it to be.
1: Yeah, the distinction I draw is with that last chapter, he was kind of wrapping up his concept of the, like, two locuses to challenge capitalist realism on. And this, we're kind of, yeah, so moving on from that, building off that, as you said. So um, it was
0: like mental illness, bureaucracy, and now he's saying... What happens to people living under capitalist yeah, realism? I think that's fair. How how are their lives and their experiences uh, changed? How are their realities shifted? And one thing that he looks at initially with this is this idea of dreaming, but uh, also as a as a kind of fungible reality. Yeah.
1: So fungibility. I mean, I, I think interchangeability is a Fair enough synonym to use. A reality that can be molded in such a way, but he wants to distinguish from generalized concepts of propaganda, I guess. Or like the, even getting a little more than like the Marxist idea of ideology, more of a, a reality that's constantly changing, but you don't even know. much the idea we're working.
0: I relate this uh, similar to I think what he does with management coming to you telling you you need to work on Saturday you need to work on Sunday you're you're constantly changing every week with different alternating schedules sometimes they they'll set a schedule and they'll change your schedule at the last minute and then come to you and say well we're really sorry but can you come in this time and that Mm -hmm. And for the good of the company. And I feel like that's really what fungible reality under capitalist realism looks like in a very concrete way.
1: He goes in on um, uh, the idea of the manager who gives like competing goals that are self contradictory, but the contradiction isn't. Like, even what you said about like saying, we're sorry, but. Uh, I think he's talking more about a thing where there's no acknowledgement enough to even know they should say sorry. Yeah. I think is fair to say. So he he starts with The Lathe of Heaven, one of the Old books in anarchist-written anti-communist sci-fi from the 20th century.
0: Ursula Le Guin. Yes. Le Guin, Le Guin.
1: I honestly don't know. Uh, I've never actually... Heard her name pronounced by someone who knew the pronunciation. Only seen it written down. Uh, so it's about a man named George Orr, or as I call him George Orr. Essentially, he discovers that when he dreams a thing, the thing that he dreams suddenly becomes reality. So if he, you know, dreams it's raining, it'll be raining the next day. Um, that sort of thing.
0: If he dreams his aunt is dead he will find out from i think in the in the story he finds out from his mom that his aunt died in a car crash and it was already presumed that he knew this when he didn't
1: right right like yeah that's the main deal so there's two deals with it the first deal is when the reality changes, if it changes something in the past, reality comports to it, and George Orr is the only one who doesn't know that a change took place, so, you know, we watched the PBS movie. Really great. Yeah, yeah, it's a fun. Um, From
0: the 70s? Yeah,
1: yeah, and, uh, yeah, I hadn't read this, I've read 84, 1984, but, um...
0: 1980 film. 19... The film Lathe of Heaven is from 1980 with uh, Bruce Davidson, Davison, who you'll recognize I believe from one of the Marvel uh, X-Men movies, he was in X-Men 2, I think? The one where they were doing social justice for the support of mutants, I think he was in that one. Wait, was he the senator? Yeah. Oh,
1: shit, okay. Uh, so <laughs> he
0: plays George Orr in yeah. Lathe of Heaven.
1: So anyway, it's similar uh, like you know, to 1984, like we've always been at war with East Asia, where just everyone sort of flips, acknowledges it, except it's sort of a little more supernatural than that. It has some inexplicable real effect. And the second thing with the story is he goes to a hypnotherapist who basically uses him as the monkey paw from the monkey paw episode of Twilight Zone.
0: Can you expand on that? What does the hypnotherapist do? Uh, Basically, he comes to the hypnotherapist, and he said, hey, hypnotherapist, this keeps happening to me. I dream of things, and then they happen. My aunt died, and I think he does a test, right? He tests him. He's like, oh, can you dream that... The mountain is the picture on the wall, and it becomes the picture on the wall, mm-hmm. so that's how he knows that it's true. Right. I forget the
1: methodology for which the hypnotherapist took him self out of the causality chain, so he also knows that it happened, but he figures something out. Anyway, he basically uses him to make wishes for a better world, but all the wishes have a dark downside, like Stalinism. You know, essentially the thing that Mark Fisher is interested in from this is the ability with which the characters incorporate the new reality on top of the old, which he likens to our late capitalist, post fordist capitalist, realist edition.
0: Yeah, and you bring up 1984 as a comparison, and that kind of anti-communist idea of the worst projections of what communism are. Or, or the folly of trying to design a good
1: society, I think, is really the point. Of, if we want to... What they
0: identified about communism of, like, brainwashing and propaganda and shifting realities and changing who you think you are versus your your relationship right. to the state. He's saying... The worst things that uh, these anti-communists wrote about uh, about communism are true right now in capitalism.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, no, that, absolutely. The one Lagoon I did read was a short story which I'm now just realizing was also anti-communist. Uh, You're just realizing this now? Yeah, the ones who left Amalas. Yeah, it was just a cool story, but, uh, you know, it's still like... A paradise built on suffering, and um, the heroes are the ones who reject it. But yeah, so so that that's basically pretty much how the story goes. You know, like because it's the '70s, the di- the scientist is like, dream of a world where there's no uh, overpopulation, and then like a plague wipes out like all <laughs> of Africa. You know, it's fun.
0: Well, we have, he relates this to Freud, Nietzsche, and Kant, and he's saying, you know, we know from all these people that this doesn't only happen when you're dreaming, this happens when you're waking. We see these, this screen of life through this kind of parallax view, which will come up in a, in the next chapter, but you see the screen of life through this thing that is fungible, that is easily molded to whatever the reality and context is telling you.
1: Right. So he uses the example of, I mean, Gordon Brown, I think, is the big example he uses for that in politics. You had a particularly good American example of that.
0: Yeah. Gordon Brown, for the context here, is a British politician, and his whole point with Gordon Brown is that in the past, labor left wing politicians used to pit themselves and invent a working class background. Like Whoa. these kind of bourgeois politicians would be like, I was once a working man. I grew up living with this working class job. And here I am now talking to you, man to man, working class man to working class man. You know, it was common for these politicians to have their life story scrutinized and picked apart and shown to be false. But here, in Gordon Brown's example, Mark Fisher's pointing out that he's the first labor politician who's supposed to be a left-wing politician who invented a capitalist past, Mm -hmm. that he worked in finance. What he worked in finance was not really... um, Yeah, business is in my blood, is what he said, and that his mother was, uh, she would have called herself a businesswoman, and yeah, while there have been labor politicians who have tried to invent working class backgrounds for themselves before, Brown is the first to try and invent a capitalist background. And he says that this kind of fungible reality uh, is the thing that animates a voter, and, and that it's the first time a labor left-wing politician is saying, you should identify with me as a capitalist, not as a regular working-class
1: person. Yeah, I I mean, with Brown specifically, what he was saying was that Brown, in fact, was from a working-class background. He was, you know, this kind of Scottish tradition of the, like, working-class politician. Presbyterian
0: Uh, socialist. Yes.
1: Uh, The English political matrix is fascinating. But he ran fairly consistently through the 80s and what have you as Mr. Working Class Background. And then, you know, starting in the 90s, he just kind of flipped the switch and never acknowledged that he flipped that switch.
0: He was the rival to Tony Blair, who ended up being more or less the face of neoliberalism in, well, I guess Thatcher is the face of neoliberalism in in Britain, but Tony Blair was the face of labor neoliberalism. Yeah, new new labor. Um, New labor. And he says here, Blair was Nietzschean's last man by nature, and inclination. Brown has become the last man, the dwarf at the end of history by force of will. Yeah,
1: yeah. Tony Blair never ran as a working class. Like, he, he, that was never a thing. When Labor did that switch, he didn't need to reinvent himself. Gordon Brown did, and he did so successfully without ever acknowledging the fact that he did that.
0: Right. And I think that that is part of what Fisher sees as a huge problem under capitalist realism, which is that all of these kind of working class energy as a political movement are always negotiating with neoliberalism and bourgeois kind of politics. And this creates a fungible reality where what you thought before as a kind of maybe a socialist radical gets incorporated into the propaganda of neoliberalism. The example from America that comes to mind is more like MLK, MLK being kind of a radical well, I mean, socialist I, I would... um, that has been remolded and brought into neoliberalism as the face of civil rights and, and kind of uh, liberalism par excellence. And Really, whitewashed his history of radicalism as part of the larger project.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I thought you were talking about the example of you know li- liberal views of Bush.
0: Well, I think that's slightly different. I think the the view of Bush, he didn't really invent a working class background no, in no, the same no, way. No, no,
1: no. You know, the the fact that liberals now look at Bush as a good moderate whereas before they didn't.
0: Yeah, and and I think that that has a fungible reality for the political identity of the people who now look at Bush as this kind of moderate, compassionate uh, figure within the Republican Party against something like Donald Trump and kind of rabid nationalism, even though George Bush was a rabid nationalist, and did horrible things, now liberals, right, right. liberals look back on him with like a, a rosy view of his right, administration. Right.
1: Yeah, no, and to your point about King earlier, I think there's something to be said about the fact that King was highly opposed in his time, and the people who opposed him remained in power, and seamlessly integrated him as if they had always supported him. And likewise with liberals and Bush, you know, there was mass opposition to Bush and liberals since Trump have kind of reinstated that as, oh, it was this era of good feelings. Didn't we all feel that way? And and like there's, you know, for lack of a better word and not to use the word inappropriately, but there's a degree of gaslighting um, about it. I think it is actually an appropriate use of the term, where it's not just lying, it's just an insistent on a present reality that we all know to be untrue because we were all there, but it just nonetheless gets swept up and presumed.
0: Well, I think the examples of King and Bush kind of have two sides of a similar coin, whereas one, Bush was opposed by the Democrats, and then they incorporated his image or his compassionate belief in bipartisanship into their own message. Into their,
1: oh, well, he's an example of a Republican we don't hate, unlike Trump, who's just a slovenly man.
0: Right, he, he kind of bought into Yeah, he, the, he
1: suddenly was, ah, uh, yes, this was a man that I could work with, that I could feel good about.
0: Whereas I think with King, they kind of de-radicalized and defanged kind of his message over time. It's and it, not
1: even just his message, but even, like, the place where America was about him. Like, if you... Listen to the history of the civil rights movement. No one was opposed to the civil rights movement at the time, the way it's told today.
0: Right, and my point was that it then gets incorporated into the mythos of civil rights that everybody now agrees upon was always going to end the way it was when it Mm -hmm. wasn't during the time of... And similar to you know the fights over gay rights similar mm-hmm. there was you know widespread disdain of gay rights and uh, there is especially this notion of like we were all always behind gay rights leading up to obama's election and that it was and he actually ran against gay rights right, in or, or, to, or to kind of
1: also bring it back to an example you used in a different way, uh, but to make this connection, because I think there is some big other no- notions about it, where this is a moment where the big other changes its mind, and as soon as the big other changes its mind, now the myth to the big other is that the big other always felt this way. And... To that end, uh, the Republicans have always been against the war in Iraq. You know, to that end, everyone has always been against the war in Iraq.
0: And in the future, we may rewrite Ukraine as we were always opposed to Ukraine. Or in another sense, uh, Donald Trump will be seen as a moderate. Or something along those lines of things that we take for granted right now as part of a liberal consensus will more than likely change a decade down the line, if not sooner. And sometimes you see it happen in real time. Sometimes you, uh, it takes a, a while, but people can't even think, can't even imagine.
1: Yeah, they're not actively there for it. You know, I mean no one thought nelson mandela was a terrorist in the 80s you know no no one like i mean name a thing like you 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 see it happen all the time right um i'm
0: gonna go for a break Oh,
1: huge
0: huge elephant, it's it's a huge, huge trunk like that. All right, so that was a clip from the movie that he passingly references, but yeah, it's a he, very good movie.
1: The the chapter has the word memory in the title, so he just like name drops Memento, Eternal Sunshine, and the Bourne films like just in a sentence. <laughs> yeah,
0: all these movies. All dealt. And I think he is kind of addressing <laughs> something that is real, which is an anxiety about memory and memory loss that we find in a, a lot of media. And he's correct to identify this, but he's also correct to identify this as part of a greater political project, to have you forget the things that you were so sure of yesterday or the day before or right. the day before that. And that this then creates a fungible reality where your lives and realities are able to be shaped by those that own businesses in which you work for or have power in, in, and you have no power over them.
1: Right. The, need, the needs of capital are constantly shifting and they need a compliant working class to go
0: along with that. Jason Bourne does remind me a little bit of the, uh, what he's talking about, Gordon Brown, because he has to remember his past, right? Like, he, he is a person mm-hmm. without past. He's sort of a tabula rasa. He doesn't remember what he has. So he has to find all of these clues about his past, and uh, yep. yeah, in the original novel there's uh, this quote, I have to know certain things, enough to make a decision, but maybe not everything. A part of me has to be able to walk away, disappear. I have to be able to say to myself, what was isn't any longer, and there's a possibility that it never was because I have no memory of it. What a person can't remember didn't exist for him." And this is very true in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, where the Kind of sci-fi reality allows this corporation to go in and erase the memory of a person. Uh, well, they erase both people's memory from of each other from existence. So, like if you break up with your spouse or your partner and you don't want to remember them, you can just wipe them from the memory and that it's a service that this private corporation does. And what happens when that those two people start remembering their past and meet each other again.
1: Right. So he he relates it to uh, Jameson, Antimonies of the Postmodern, as well as the idea of deterritorialization and reterritorialization from Deleuze and Guattari, and also, I mean, as a callback to ontology he in fact does mention Leonard's, or mementos, theoretically pure anterograde amnesia. Yep. Uh, which, in Hauntology, was used kind of in this manner to suggest the haunting, where, you know, for example, to Leonard, you know, music he might have heard right before the accident 20 years ago feels like music he listened to just yesterday. And that kind of idea that when you have a fungible past, a fungible present, it does mimic the idealized symptoms of anterograde amnesia.
0: Yeah, and he relates this to Deleuze and Guattari as well. Right. uh, That the memory ends up being this struggle of deterritorialization, reterritorialization. re-territorialization. Like, literally, your, your mind and your memory in some of these examples, like Eternal Sunshine, but also Memento, those are things that then get bulldozed over and replaced with other things. And you have, like, flickering senses of them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He mentions uh, memories are photoshopped. Here's a good quote. If memory disorder provides a compelling analogy for the glitches in capitalist realism, the model for its smooth functioning would be dream work. What we are dreaming, we forget, but immediately forget that we have done so. Since the gap's lacuna in our memories are photoshopped out, They do not trouble or torment us. What dream work does is to produce a confabulated consistency, which covers over anomalies and contradictions. And it is this which Wendy Brown picked up on when she argued that it was precisely dream work, which provided the best model for understanding contemporary forms of power. And this is where, he talks about Wendy Brown's essay "American Nightmare," neoconservatism, neoliberalism, and de-democratization, and I think this will take a little bit of explanation from uh, a political science person, such yeah, as yourself. Yeah, uh,
1: honestly, I always read this. I always had
0: like an issue with it. So her question is: Wendy Brown, for the record, is. The partner, the life partner of Judith Butler.
1: Yeah, okay. And Uh, she's
0: more of a political theorist than Judith Butler is, but Judith Butler is also uh, an important political theorist and known for gender troubles. Yes. Yes.
1: She's known for gender troubles, nothing else. If you ever meet Judith Butler, ask her just about gender troubles. Only
0: ask her only about, ask her about the one book she wrote it clear 40 years you ago. I have
1: not read a single other book of hers. <laughs> oh, she loves that in interviews. She loves when people actually do
0: that. ask her. She
1: loves it in Q&As. She loves it in interviews. Go to a QA about a book she just wrote and Get in line for the questions. Don't ask her about that book she just wrote that she's talking about. Ask Ask her about gender.
0: Ask her, is gender performative?
1: Yes, (laughs) ask her that. Uh, Say, hey, sometimes I, like, perform a different gender. Does that mean I'm the different gender? Ask her that question. She loves that question. (laughs) Um, Anyway, Judith Butler's uh, partner, Wendy Brown, Uh, wants to answer the question of how is it that neoliberalism and neoconservatism work together to deliver the same things despite being apparently different. My general question in reading this is I never thought of them as apparently different. I always thought of, at best, neoconservatism to be a specific group of neoliberals that, like, kind of share a little bit of, like, Culture and history, but otherwise, I view them as more or less the same. And I like it. Never even occurred to me that I, that they ever said they were different. But hey,
0: okay. It, so let's look at her distinction, element. and then you can react to it. How does a rationality that is expressly amoral at the level of both ends and means (in parentheses, neoliberalism) aside? Mm-hmm. So she's defining neoliberalism as an amoral rationality that is concerned with the ends and means intersect with one that is expressly moral and regulatory, Neoconservatism in parentheses. So neoconservatism is the moral regulatory system, whereas neoliberalism is amoral and it seems like she's saying is a market system. Right. How does a project that empties the world of meaning, that cheapens and Deracinates life and openly exploits desire, intersect one centered on fixing and enforcing meaning, conserving certain ways of life, and repressing and regulating desire. So, neoliberalism, by this definition, empties the world of meaning and uses life to exploit desire, contrasted against neoconservatism, which is fixing meaning and enforcing meaning and conserving a way of life to while repressing desire. I think that's like, one is exploiting desire and one is repressing desire.
1: So George W. Bush's administration is generally considered the neoconservative administration wherein he directly brought in a bunch of think tank and political theorists in the neoconservative school upon winning that uh, 9-11 sort of accelerated the neoconservative... International project, etc., etc. They tried to privatize social securities. Like, there's a very, I guess, particular way she's using regulatory versus deregulatory because that doesn't comport with how I would normally use those terminologies. Like, to me, neoliberalism is a generalized set of political theories centered around a general belief in market efficacy and the role of a government to support that, both domestically and abroad. Neoconservatism is a form of neoliberalism that focuses heavily on the abroad part and also has a particular history as being former Trotskyist cold warriors who believe in, at the very least, a positivist view that liberal market-based democracy is a good thing, not only for the people who live under it, but also for other liberal democracies. It's better to have more countries that are like yourself. And they believe that a way of protecting and growing markets is an aggressive use of the US military to insert liberal market democracies abroad and encourage their spread and growth while adopting a generally deregulatory scheme at home. And its connection to social conservative, you know, culture war issues has always been. Barely incidental and tenuous like it was founded by mostly jewish ex-trotskyists from new york city i don't know like, that
0: she's discussing those that found it though
1: but i mean like oh, it, like until the the 80s it wasn't married to the republican party at all and it was the 80s where you got that Insertion of the you know cultural Christian moral majority with a neoconservative project. She
0: does seem to locate this specifically with the Bush administration and specifically with Christian evangelical right voters. So it, it seems like or voting blocks in their in their desire. So
1: so it seems as if almost she's answering more of a question of neoconservatism itself in its modern inception at the time which was combining neoliberal ideas with culturally conservative ideas you know restricting abortion restricting stem cell research uh which is a big issue at the time and different things like that uh gay marriage etc
0: and okay so i think. Gay marriage being an example of one of the things that she's specifically locating here that as a regulatory thing. So so almost... That regulating people's desires and repressing people's desires, for instance, homosexual desires versus a neoliberal approach of, well, if we just put rainbow flags in our small businesses, that'll increase the amount of inclusivity and and market value of our company yeah
1: and if we're not prejudiced against gay people then maybe like a qualified gay person will work for our company and you know create value for our company Right.
0: Well, Raytheon Missile Systems is celebrating LGBTQ Pride Month. Employees gathered outside of company headquarters yesterday for a flag-raising and a speech by the company's president. Raytheon says it's proud of its diverse and inclusive workplace culture. Pride Month is celebrated in June to mark a tipping point in the gay rights movement, the Stonewall Uprising in Manhattan.
1: Sure. Um, and, and so, to me, really what she's saying is... She's not locating neoliberals versus neoconservatives as, like, different politicians, but within neoconservatism itself, these two ideas of this social conservative regulatoriness with this, you know, all that is solid melts into air, uh, crush it, liquidate it, turn it into cash,
0: neoliberalism. Right, and I think what Fisher is zeroing in on is that this... He says it here, symbiosis between these political rationalities and the calculations that they make creates a very narrow view of possibility and to go back to the overarching theme of the entire uh, book, uh, is there no alternative? It doesn't seem to allow for alternative political structures to exist outside this symbiosis. and. It's kind of an old trope that like third party candidates kind of use the duopoly of that there's a monopoly of two different vaguely liberal bourgeois parties that are fighting over three different issues and posturing against them that seems to be what he's locating in brown yeah. as a as a way to argue that this creates a fungibility within our realities that make it impossible to find to, to break out and have an alternative outside this binaried system.
1: Right. And yeah, I mean generally, I mean she mentions the Frankfurt School and it kind of sounds like that. But yeah, this general idea of like using the market choice and providing relevant signs science- for the consumer to identify with in place of political activism, which is, you know, I mean, I don't think she's just saying, like, uh, the culture war is used to distract you from essentially a consensus on uh, economic and, you know, international issues. That's kind of what she's getting at.
0: Yeah, and he ends the chapter here, it's kind of a short chapter, Extrapolating a little from Brown's argument, we might hypothesize that what held the bizarre synthesis of neoconservatism and neoliberalism together was their shared objects of abomination, the so-called nanny state and its dependents. Despite evincing an anti-statist rhetoric, neoliberalism is in practice not opposed to the state per se, as the bank bailouts of 2008 demonstrate but rather to particular uses of state funds. Meanwhile, neoconservatives' strong state was confined to military and police functions and defined itself against a welfare state held to undermine individual moral responsibility." This reminds me a lot of what he says in the first chapter about children of men, that when given a chance, neoliberalism, and here he's including neoconservatism that given the chance to accelerate its process, given the, ex- the expansion of surveillance state, given a chance to destroy the welfare state, what do you have? But you reduce the state to its military functions. And basically, you know, like you're on the axiom. You're just kind of getting desire signs spit at you, and you just click on buttons and right. And at the same time, there's wars overseas. There's things that are being done and atrocities that are being done. And there's, like, immigrant shelters, immigration, like, concentration camps next to Starbucks. This kind of, like, mm-hmm. exist And He's kind of coming to the question of how can these two things possibly exist next to one another. Kind of like all these horrible human rights violations next to, you know, hippies partying in a desert.
1: Yeah, and I think, like, you know, to kind of go back to my confusion, I I think really what Wendy Brown is trying to say is you would think if someone was to privatize Social Security or attempt to do so, that would be a impersonal market logic that doesn't care about tradition, that doesn't care about society, that just wants to increase value. If you look at someone who says a uh, government has an interest in who you marry, you would think that's, on the alternative, a government that's highly personal, that's highly interested in things other than creating value. that is highly interested in a smoothly functioning, homogenous society. And yet, how do they both exist in one party? And why did the Bush administration both oppose gay marriage and try and end social security? You would think they wouldn't go
0: together. Right. And there's this kind of... I don't know if it's protectionism, but it's at the same time like a a conserving in a like traditional sense, the conservation of these, as Wendy Brown says, these fixed meanings mm. that don't they don't want changed, right? The neoconservatives don't right. want the definition <laughs> of marriage to change. The, that was a huge
1: the, the Bush administration also.
0: That was a huge rhetoric right, back right. then. You know, in the same way that they don't want the definition of a man and woman to change mm-hmm. in
1: Yeah, I mean to the extent that they call themselves neoconserv that anyone calls themselves that nobody anymore. does. Yeah. Well,
0: and there's a little bit of uh reading this, it's like, oh man, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it's very no- weird. Nostalgia in a way that like I remember when neoconservatives were still a Political block that people call mm-hmm. themselves, but at the same time, they're they they never went away. Yeah, no,
1: the same people are still in power, and they like, say the same.
0: The same people are saying, you know, we should bomb, bomb, bomb. You know, Lindsey Graham on the on the yeah yeah, yeah. telling the news to bomb brown people it hasn't changed.
1: Right, right. The Iraq War has always been a mistake that no one was in favor of, but. This one's correct.
0: Right. Yeah. so how do you link this to memory though? That's the that's that's something that I never quite circled the so square. With,
1: yeah, so with this, I would say it's well, he he links it to dream work. Yeah, I don't quite know.
0: there's <laughs> there's a certain like there's two chapters in here. On one hand, it's about dreaming and about fungible reality and then he transitions into talking about the two conservatives and liberals and how they're the same. And I think I, I'm i extrapolating, and he says uh, he's extrapolating from her, but I'm extrapolating from him that the way in which these two locus of power maintain themselves is by having the people that vote for them or do activist rallies against them that they're betting on them forgetting eventually right? Yeah or being able to
1: sort of seamlessly incorporate the one and the other that suddenly no in fact you at once have gay marriage is not regulatory but a thing imposed on you and Social security is not society, but instead an undermining of traditional societal values.
0: Right. And then traditional and that
1: kind of re-territorialization turn, I think, is what he's saying.
0: Right. It sort of goes back to what he was saying about naturalizing. You know, these things, these social issues are naturalized into our society and we build a mythological past where it's always been mm-hmm. that way. Right. George Bush has always been um this compassionate person who was, you know, made some mistakes but was overall a good guy who just paints. Mm-hmm. Um and that kind of incorporates into the memories of people living under neoliberalism because the big other says that or wants you to believe that for its own ends mm-hmm. because it wants yeah. you to believe that your empire is benevolent and the people that run it are also benevolent
1: right and that the needs of you know privatization and austerity are your needs and that actually you know these systems have been around for 60 70 80 90 years uh, they're actually this pernicious alien thing that undermines your true self
0: well, yeah, it also yeah. speaks to something he, to go off what you're saying, it also speaks to forgetting the positives of social democracy. Right, exactly,
1: exactly, and, or forgetting your history of social democracy, that it's this alien and outside thing, and not, you know, we've had social security for since the 1930s. But, like, simultaneously telling someone who they're allowed to marry, well, that's to protect my freedom. Mm-hmm. And, and this sort of, yeah, territorialization, reversal. Those precepts.
0: Yeah, okay. Yeah, I think we hashed that out. Uh, yeah. Check out next time when we go deep into Kafka. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is no central exchange. And we'll leave you...
1: Never forget nine eleven. Leave you... Remember to never forget.
0: Remember
1: the night, the night you said, I'll love you. Remember, remember you
0: vowed by all the stars.